You're listening to Master Photography Podcast. I am your host, Brent Bergherm, and I am a travel outdoor photographer. I am also an educator, and it is my goal to help you achieve more in your photography. Thank you for being here today as we talk about the Canon EOS R. Some people love it, and some people pretty much like to make fun of it, it seems. I haven't yet had a chance to handle this camera, but I'm certainly intrigued by what Canon has for us in their first full-frame mirrorless camera. Today, I'm joined by a listener, Mary Malinconico. She uses the EOS R, and I'm so glad she's able to come on the show and talk about this camera with us. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brent. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. It's, it's so great to have you here and talking about this camera that, for me, it's been something like, you know, hmm... That looks pretty good. And one of the complaints that a lot of people have about this camera is that it's too close to the 5D Mark IV and whatnot. And and we'll kind of get into those details. But actually, before we get too far down that road, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about yourself. I know you're a teacher as well. And so fill in the listeners with a few details uh, about, about that side of your life. Sure. Well, thank you, Brett, for having me on the podcast. These podcasts have been so valuable to me and the photography community because they provide a great resource for all levels of photographers across the globe. And I'm an associate professor of computer graphic arts at Rowan College in Southern New Jersey. I live outside of Philadelphia with my wife, my two sons, and my two dogs. During my daily commute from Pennsylvania to New Jersey, which is about a 30-minute drive, I love to listen to podcasts. I am a serious hobbyist, semi-professional photographer, I like to shoot different subjects, including macros, flowers, abandoned places, and landscapes. In addition to my teaching responsibilities at the college, I am an FAA certified drone pilot. I fly for fun, and I work with several real estate photographers who need drone aerial photos or videos of properties. Yeah, that drone stuff uh, that you mentioned, I didn't know that about you. So tell me really quickly, what drone do you have? And you, you say you do real estate. Do you do anything else besides real estate with that? I have a, a DJI Mavic. Okay. And I had a Spark before that, which I really loved. And I have a lot of friends who are real estate photographers, and they didn't want to take the exam and become a certified pilot. So yeah. When I did it, they said, oh, well, now you can just come and take our aerial photos and videos. <laughs> nice. So that's what I've been doing. Yes. Awesome. That's that's good. That's something that I also have kind of shied away from because, uh, again, it's just all the red tape and all that, you know, mumbo jumbo that goes along with it. I do have a couple of coworkers that are pilots and one of them just got certified as well. And I was like, you know, maybe I should just have you train me because that could make things really easy then. Uh, and of course, my brother's a pilot, so there's there's lots of flying in in my you know friends and family. So it has been something that's kind of been gnawing on me. So maybe you'll be an inspiration for me to to get into it. And Brian McGuckin, uh, another partner of the podcast, he just got into it as well. That's cool that that you're doing that as well. It's a great thing to have in your toolkit when you're out and about. I I took it to Oregon. I was recently in Oregon, and I I was able to fly at the coast nice. and see some different perspectives. Oh, yeah. So it's a neat. Um, fun tool to have. I also have been pressed into teaching a college class to get some of our students certified um, and pass the FAA exam. Yeah. To be honest with you, it was one of the hardest exams I've studied for, and I've taken some of the Adobe certification classes, 
And this one was a little bit nerve wracking. Yeah. Wow. I bet. Well, that's cool. So how long would you say you've been shooting overall? Like when, when was the first time you picked up a camera? Well, I first bought my um, a first film camera in 1984, um, and I switched to digital in 2003 when I bought my first Canon digital camera. All right. And then I moved up to a digital Rebel, and then I moved up to 7D Mark II. In addition to, um, to the camera bodies, the Canon camera bodies, I have four Canon professional lenses, also known as the L series class. Right. I have a 24 to 105, a 70 to 300, a 100 millimeter macro, and a 16 to 35 wide angle. In addition to the Canon lenses, I have several specialty lenses from LensBaby. Okay. I have a Velvet 85, a Burnside, and a Sol 45. So I have a pretty large investment in Canon glass. Yeah. And to be honest with you, the last, uh, the two lenses I got, the 70 to 300 and the 16 to 35, I got from friends who were selling their Canon gear to switch to mirrorless. Ah, and they probably switched to like Sony or some other mirrorless system. Correct. Yeah. So you probably got a pretty good deal on those, maybe. I did. Great. And yeah. to, to be honest with you, Brett, I was also lusting after a mirrorless system. <laughs> yeah. Um, like most people were. And why is that? What's what's drawing you to that mirrorless type stuff? Well, the two features that I was most interested in were the focus peaking feature. Okay. This would be a big plus for me when I was using my lens baby lenses because they're all manual focus. Yeah, the good point. Yeah. With these lenses, the focus peaking would allow me to see a color to see what was in focus. The yeah, other feature, so it kind of changes the... It basically just highlights in some way what's in focus when you're looking in through the viewfinder or on the little screen. Correct. It puts it in a color, and I yeah. set mine to go into a red Okay. so that it goes into a red color so that I see what's in focus. And as you move the focus ring on the lens, baby, you know, things come more into focus or less into focus. Yeah, cool. The other feature that I wanted to use was the electronic viewfinder so I could get more accurate exposures. Okay. Now, with my 7D, I would have to take several shots, several underexposed, some around the zero on the light meter, and several overexposed because I really wasn't sure what I was getting with my exposure through the back of my camera or even through looking through the viewfinder. Some of these photos I could use. Some of them I would just have to trash. Or in order to get the best exposure, I would have to create um, an HDR image. Sure. And this kind of hunting and pecking through the exposure was really frustrating for me. That's one thing that I, I think back to my film days when I shot slide. Getting that exposure nailed was was super important. And of course, when you shoot film, you just you have to wait weeks or whenever you can get it processed. So, and then with slide being so particular on the exposure side of things, you have to really nail it in. And that's I think what you're saying is you basically have the same quasi idea as you're shooting when you when you don't have that electronic viewfinder, you just don't know with the immediate idea. You don't know exactly what you got. You'd have to take a break and take a you know play the image on camera, and that can slow down your shooting. Is that kind of what you're getting at there? Correct. And what I found myself doing as I was going out on shoots and I was taking, you know, set up one composition and taking seven different exposures just in case because I never knew which one would be the best. Yeah. Also, the one other thing we actually uh, met out here in Washington State, you were on a, a Nick Page workshop Correct. and I was there trying to that was back when I was pushing lenses and cameras with my rental company. And so Nick allowed me to come and uh, offer gear to his people. 
How have you grown in your photography since that time? Well, I think the one thing that I mastered pretty quickly was the technical aspects of the camera. Yeah. So what I needed to really focus on was more my composition. I really had to work on that in terms of slowing down, looking at what I was shooting, just not, you know, yeah. shooting, shooting, shooting and moving around, but really slowing down. So basically, it's it comes down to being more uh, thoughtful and intentional in your composition, in your scene, and and the subject that you're that you're placing in that composition, crafting that, trying to get to that perfect scene is is that kind of where you're going with that? Correct. And one of the things that I found was because I was so hung up on what's the exposure and what am I doing, I I didn't have the ability to focus more on the composition. I was sure. too focused technically. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, that makes a lot of sense because. Without the good technical, though, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a good composition or not. If it's beyond, you know, rescue, whatever you want to call it, you know, it, it doesn't, it still doesn't work. So it, that's one thing I love about photography is you have to have both the technical and the creative coming together. And that's like the, when that happens, it just, whoosh, you know, it's awesome. Yes, correct. Yeah, I love that. Now, I will say that when uh, last year, when Nick Page, who was a longtime Canon shooter, announced that he was switching to Sony, I seriously considered switching from the Canon system to another mirrorless system. I investigated the Sony, the Fuji, and the Olympus system. Yeah. But the biggest stumbling block for me was my investment in lenses. If I was going to switch to a new system and get at least the three pro-level lenses along with a new camera body... I was looking at spending over $10,000. Oh, yeah. And, and that kind of money was not in my budget. <laughs> so I decided to wait for the Canon mirrorless system to be released. Yeah, that was probably a good a good thing. Uh, so then the R was released, and uh, you certainly already have one. So you're one of the, I guess we can say, early adopters of it. Correct. I actually bought the Canon EOS R on the first day it was released. Oh, wow. Okay. Talk about a leap of faith. I guess. So I purchased the camera body, the adapter to convert my EF lenses to the new R mount, and a new 24 to 105 lens. And all in with taxes, it was about $4,000. Yeah. Now that's a pretty big chunk of money, but it wasn't a $10,000 new investment. Yeah, because you didn't have to totally switch everything over. So what do you really love about the camera? What's the like the one thing, if you had to boil it down to just one thing, if that's possible that you just think Canon got it right. So I'm I'm not allowed to say everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's start at the top maybe. Okay. Uh what let, let's you know is it the viewfinder is it the handling is it the ergonomics what what about it is just like yes this is this is really good. I think the best part of the new camera body is the adapter so I could use all my lenses. Yeah. And which um, adapter did you get? Did you get the straight one or the one with the ring on it or the one that takes the filters? I got the one with the um, ring on it. So okay. that was about $199. Yeah. And I have n had no issues with any of my lenses, whether it was a Canon lens or lens baby um, with the adapter. Sure. Um, it's really, it was the best thing to preserve my investment in my lenses. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, well, there's a lag time between the camera and the lenses. I have not experienced that. It's super fast. I've had no issues with in terms of like the connection between the lenses yeah. And the camera, it just works perfectly. Cool. So the other thing that I love about the new camera is the focus peaking. Um, this is especially great when I'm using my lens baby lenses. Yeah. Um, it lets me get the focus 
really on the first or second shot because I can see through the viewfinder exactly what's in focus by seeing the color. And this has been a tremendous help for me. Yeah, I bet that was now. Does it also do the like the zebras thing on it? Uh, because some cameras do the zebras for focus speaking, or is this only a a, a a certain color? Like you said, I think you said you set yours to red. Correct. I set mine to red, and as you turn the um, focus ring, it whatever's in focus comes into red, and then whatever's okay. not is not. Sure. Which is a really nice thing. Cool. The next thing I really like about the the camera body um, is the electronic viewfinder. Yeah. which has really helped me get a lot more accurate exposures. As I mentioned before with my 17D, I was taking many exposures to try to get the right one. With the EOS R, I can adjust my, my exposure and see exactly what I'm going to get before I shoot it, which is really, really nice. And I can see if I'm blowing out the highlights or right. you know underexposing the shadows. Now, can you, in the electronic viewfinder, can you overlay the histogram on it while you're shooting? Correct, you can. Awesome. So there's many, many different information settings that you can yeah. put. So you can ha set it up however you want um, in, in the back. Cool. I remember a time, it's <laughs> so long ago now, it seems. I think this was back in, um, I want to say about 2002, 2003, somewhere in there. I was still shooting film. Mm -hmm. And di digital was relatively, you know, new, I guess we can say. Uh, but I was, I had a meeting with my photography mentor and I, I went up to his house. He lived in, he lives in uh, Seattle area. And one of the things that I was, was just saying, you know, I was dreaming and just like, oh, it'd be so awesome if, and I was like, you know, if we could have a histogram overlaid on top of the image, you know, in our viewfinder. And he just looked at me and was just like, that'll be the day. <laughs> and I was just like, well, you know, that would help. And of course, now we have it and, and it's just delightful. It is really awesome. It really does help you get much better exposures. Oh yeah. When I'm shooting in live view, like when I'm doing most of my landscapes, I just shoot in live view. So I'm using the back screen on my 5d4 and i almost mm -hmm. always have that histogram up but I'm, I'm often hitting that info button so it changes the the feel of the you know what information is showing there because when you do have the histogram there's so much junk on screen and i like to be able to certainly compose without all that junk and then i look okay i can i can test it out and, and nail the exposure pretty good so that viewfinder resolution is a, a 3.69 million dot or a, you know 3.7 megapixel basically a uh, little rendition of an image there. How would you compare that to an SLR where obviously you're just, you know, the light is bouncing off a mirror going through the pentaprism and there's no electronic representation of your image. As far as the clarity of the image, how would you compare that to just a, a standard SLR? I mean, it's night and day in terms of what you see yeah, and the accuracy of what you're getting. I can say that I probably shoot maybe a quarter less images because okay. I am getting it right in the back. And people say, well, oh, that doesn't seem like a lot of megapixels for the, the, you know, the, the screen, but you can zoom in and you can see exactly what's in focus. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing you can do is with your highlight alerts, um, you can really not blow out your highlights. Yeah, that's definitely important. So just to make sure listeners are understanding, I'm talking about uh, it's 3.7 roughly megapixels on the viewfinder and it's 2.1 megapixels on the little uh, flippy screen monitor uh, both are certainly going to be fairly sharp and very fairly you know good good rendition images it's just one of the things that people 
are complaining about, or at least one of my concerns is personally as well, is that experience of looking through the viewfinder, if it's not nice and sharp and it, if it just doesn't feel quote unquote natural, that changes my experience of shooting. And it's a little bit, you know, I could see how that's going to be a little bit of a challenge for me to, to accept the mirrorless, you know, model of shooting as it were. Uh, but it sounds like, you know, when you're looking through that viewfinder, you're pretty pleased with the resolution you're getting. And, and then, of course, the benefit of understanding what the exposure is as you're shooting is, is definitely there, too. It is. And it took me probably about a month to get used to it because, okay. you know, I'd been shooting the 7D for a couple of years and yeah. I just kept going out and shooting with it. And I got used to it. And it really, I mean, it's second nature to me now. Do you wear glasses? I do. Okay. Um, and so even as, because I'm a glasses wearer, that's why I had to ask. So when you're wearing glasses, there's still no no problem with being able to see the entire viewfinder and, and all that good stuff as you're looking through the viewfinder? No, I, I don't have that problem. Okay. The only problem I'm really having is sometimes I look through the, the viewfinder and go, why is that look smudgy? Oh, it's on ah, my glasses. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. So. Oh, I, I, I hate how quickly my glasses get dirty, but I also have a five-year-old and especially when he was younger, you know, he's sitting on my lap, he'll just like grab the glass and like, no, smudges. But anyway. So another advantage yeah. that I really hadn't thought about with the um, EOS R was it actually uses the same batteries as a 7D. Yes. So I didn't have nice. to purchase all new batteries, which was another savings. Now I was concerned that when it was announced it said the battery would only last 350 photos. Mm, yeah. Um, now, it's been my experience with the camera for the last six months that I get a lot more shots out of one battery than 350. And the other thing you have to keep in mind is I'm, I would say 90% of the time I'm using Live View. My batteries are not draining. I think it's great. Cool. Yeah, I've seen some articles on that with what they're doing in, in testing. And I invite listeners to correct me if I'm wrong by contacting me in the Facebook group or email me through the site or whatever. But I think what they're doing when they, when they rate those, how many shots you get, they're running the focus through the whole spectrum and then they achieve focus again mm -hmm. and then they take a shot and then they'll run the focus through the whole spectrum again. So they're really using the autofocus motor a whole lot more than I would think we're going to use in standard shooting. Because if you're just in a standard shooting scenario, and you're taking a couple of different exposures of this one shot, or maybe you get a different framing or whatever, your autofocus motor is just not going crazy because, you know, it's it's focused at its one area and it doesn't need to hardly do anything to get the next shot. So uh, real world experience uh, to have more than what they're rating it for definitely, I, I think is fairly common, but it's good to, would you say in a standard shoot, you're getting at least a half a day of shooting on one battery? I'm getting probably six good strong hours oh nice yeah and i'm i'm not turning my camera on and off i right. have it set and you know so that goes to sleep if i'm not shooting sure um but it really i've been really really pleased with the battery life nice now the next thing that i really like about the eos r is the focus points there are yeah. thousands of them yeah i know five thousand six hundred and fifty five yes i think is what they said Yes. Now, what this means is you can literally move that little square around to any point on your subject and get accurate focus. And this is important for me if I'm doing a flower photo oh, yeah. and I want to do focus stacking. So I can move the focus point to the first petal in the stack and then move it to the next one and so on and so forth and then get the entire depth of the flower once I photo stack, I stack them in, let's say, Photoshop. 
basically what you're saying is it's just a lot easier because you can put that focus almost anywhere in the frame. I think it's like 80 or 85% of the width and then 100% of the height of the frame. It's it's ridiculous how yeah. how where you can move that little square. Yeah, and that's one thing that I remember when I was uh, trying to decide again way back kind of in the day. Canon always, you know, which one to go with. Canon always seemed to have their focus sensors too much in the center. Yes. And Nikon was kind of breaking the mold and they were getting them a little bit further out. And I was always like a little bit jealous of of Nikon shooters that had their AF sensors way out, you know, further away from the center, I should say, not just way out. And here we finally have something from Canon that is just almost filling that whole frame with autofocus sensors. Yeah, that 5,655, that's a little overkill in my opinion, but, you know, it's doing a good work. And the the increments that you can move the the focus point is so minute that literally when you're doing, you know, let's say a flower and you're moving it from, you know, one part of the petal to another part of the petal, it's so precise in terms nice. of what you can focus on. It's just amazing. Nice. I don't want to, you know, have the listeners think that everything in the is, you know, wonderful with this camera. Yeah, that's there my is, next question. What's the one thing, and maybe we can kind of go down the list if there's a couple, but the one thing you don't care for on the camera? Well, the one thing that I wasn't used to was when on my 7D, if I was in live mode, it wouldn't switch back to the um, the eyepiece if my hand went near the eyepiece. Right. For, <laughs> yes. for this camera, if you move your hand towards the eyepiece, it switches from live view back to the eyepiece, the electronic viewfinder. So Yeah, it's got that little sensor that thinks your, your face is getting close to the camera. Yeah, that's kind of annoying yeah. uh, to have that happen. So, for example, if, if my camera's on a tripod and I'm in live view and I'm composing a scene and I go to change the exposure or the shutter speed, so I have to move my hand you know, onto the, the knobs at the top, a lot of time the screen goes off because it thinks I'm putting my eye up to the camera. Yeah. And it's not. So then I just had to wait for it to switch back off. Now, I did find this annoying, but after the first couple, you know, times shooting with it, I realized what I was, what was happening. We have a local camera shop, which is really great. And I took the camera in and we actually called the Canon rep for this area. And there's no way currently to turn that off. Oh, okay. But they said that maybe in a future version of the firmware, they would put that in. Yeah, I would hope so. Because... I could see that being kind of annoying, especially if it's since that's a touchscreen too, right? Correct. And you're probably going to be putting your hand kind of close to it anyway. And just to, before you touch it, if it goes and and switches to the mode where it's you know showing it in the viewfinder, that's kind of annoying uh, to have that happen. Yeah. So I mean, it was just at first I didn't understand what was going on, and then I realized what happened, and then I just kind of had to understand, you know, don't put your hand there. Now yeah. it is fairly sensitive. So I would like them to be able to either change the sensitivity or actually to be able to turn that feature off. Yeah. So if I'm in live view, that doesn't go turn back on. Yeah, it'd be nice that they should definitely update that via firmware. What else uh, do you not care for on the camera? Or maybe it's just like, hmm, this is, a, you know, different or just whatever. Um, the one thing that's different is on the, um, the adapter and the lens that I got, um, there's a programmable ring that you can use right so i've set that so that when i move that ring it changes my exposure and that was just something again to get used to right you know if i had gone to a different system i would have relearned all the you know the locations of the dot the dials and the knobs so it was just something interesting to get used to and what i've done is you know i just practice yes so i understand that that's there 
But really, other than that, there's not much I would say that I don't like about it. So after, you know, shooting with the system for over six months now, I really think it's a good, solid camera. Yeah. And I think if if any of the listeners who have some investment in Canon Glass are interested in in moving to the mirrorless system, um, I think they should take a look at it. Another plus is that recently Canon announced the EOS RP, and that comes in at about $1,300 with the adapter. And it doesn't have as, as many megapixels. Yeah, it's uh, 26.2 megapixels. It also has a Digic 8 processor. They claim it shoots uh, 4K video as well, but it's just not as robust of a of a camera. For instance, the the very angle touchscreen LCD, as they call it, that flippy screen, yes. it's only a one megapixel screen, whereas the R is a two point whatever megapixel screen. Uh, so you have a lot more fidelity, a lot more definition detail just in that live view screen. So there's some of those things where they've, if you want to call it, cut the corners, as it were. But it's a much cheaper camera by about $1,000. So, Correct, yeah. you know, it's almost unfair to characterize it as cutting corners when you're actually saving $1,000. So Now, I can tell you that, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to move to mirrorless and it'll be a smaller, lighter camera system. Yeah. And, and I don't think that's true with any really pro-level camera, no matter what system it is. Right. As soon as you get to the pro level lenses that's really what adds the weight exactly i mean i think we could probably weigh the camera bodies and they're probably going to be all about the same but when you get to those you know lenses that's when you really get the weight exactly and that for me has been one of the big pulls for either the sony with their crop sensor stuff or the fuji which is all APS-C size that's when you can, when you, when you don't have to create such a large image circle, you can have some weight savings. And that is something that at least intrigues me. I'm not saying I'm sold on it yet, but it, to have that weight savings does intrigue me. Well, you're definitely not going to get that with this system. Sure. <laughs> and no, I, I don't think I would expect that either, because while you might shave a few grams here and there, it's, it's not going to be anything significant, especially when you balance it out you know, whenever they come out with a 100 to 400 that's dedicated to the R mount, I would expect it to effectively be the same uh, weight as uh, the current 100 to 400. So it's it's kind of, yeah, you're not really getting that benefit when we're, when we're going mirrorless uh, these days. Uh, maybe in the beginning, you know, they were, you know, just starting things out. You know, we had some, but like you said, when it comes to that pro level or, you know, prosumer level, whichever, you know, classification you want to give it, it's um, it's still going to be a little bit of a, a heavier kit. That's right, it is. All right, any last uh, items on the on the camera? Actually, one one question I do have for you: that little touch slide bar thingy, is that useful at all? What what do you use that for? I actually don't use it. Okay, I've actually turned it off because I was finding that when I was moving to the the dials for either the exposure. Or or the um, shutter speed that I kept touching it and it would do things. I thought initially, oh, I'll set that for ISO. Sure. So I did that. And then I found I kept touching it and upping my ISO or, you know, God forbid, go to auto ISO. Yeah. So I just turned that off. And to be honest with you, I have a Mac laptop and I don't use it on the, I don't use the, the touch thing on the, the Apple keyboard. I don't do that either. Pretty much same here. Um, yeah. Except for, you know, changing brightness and, and whatever, like your normal stuff, yeah. anything that is special in Photoshop or whatever, I pretty much ignore it. <laughs> exactly. And to be honest with you, I don't, a lot of developers aren't even utilizing that on the software yeah. on the computer. And I just, 
I just turned it off. It's, yeah. I think it's more of a, a gizmo than an actual positive feature. Sure. But I mean, some users may be using it and maybe the listeners could tell us what they're using it for. Yeah. When I first saw that, my initial reaction was like, you know, that could be really cool. It'll be interesting to see what happens with this because and I guess the reason I had that kind of a almost skepticism or whatever is number one, it's a new thing. So it's always like, hmm, you know, what's going on there? But in my work, I teach design and with our programs, we also have a product design program. And so I'm looking at these different product design projects all the time and certainly understanding the research that has to go into something like that to make it useful for the masses, as it were. And this is just the one thing when I first saw that, I was just like, you know, for certain people with certain size hands or certain size noses or whatever the case might be, it'll probably be awesome. But for some others... Uh, and just their normal way of working, like yourself, it sounds like you're accidentally hint- hitting it all the time. Well, and it's actually where I would put my thumb for when I'm holding the camera. Right. So it's not really placed in a position. Maybe it was put on the front. I don't know. Um, and I often wonder, well, if they added that, how much did it add to the cost of the camera? Could it have yeah. been taken out and maybe saved a couple hundred dollars? Yeah. Or even if it's only $50 or, or whatever, it's... You know, when the camera is $2,300 body only, even if we were able to save 50 or $100, that, that, that could make a big difference. I certainly don't know what a, the cost and something like that is. It might just be not that expensive at all. I just, uh, it, but anything, yeah, if it's not going to provide that extra value that we really need out of it, it just turns into a more of a, a liability than anything else. All righty. Well, thank you so much for being here, Mary. Well, thank you, Brent, for having me on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. I enjoy your feedback or questions about anything. And if you're so inclined, reach out to me on email, brent at latitudephotographypodcast.com, and uh, maybe I'll be able to answer your questions in a future episode. And you know what? I just need to, I I don't want to let you go before we tell people where they can find you, Mary. Where might they be able to find your stuff? So if you want to see some of my photos, I have a good website. It's called malinconico.com. That's M-A-L-I-N-C-O-N-I-C-O.com. I'm also on social media. In most cases, it's just Mary Malinconico, M-A-L-I-N-C-O-N-I-C-O. And I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. Pinterest. Yeah, that's uh, that's one that I tried out a while ago. And I still have an account technically, but I don't think I've logged in in like a year and a half. <laughs> but all right. Thanks again, Mary. And certainly everyone, the home of the show is at masterphotographypodcast.com. That's where we have all of our show notes and other details there, links to listen to the show and all other good stuff. And you can also find our new Instagram at masterphoto. And that's pretty much it. I will have a few announcements after the music. So if you're so inclined to go ahead and stay on after the music to listen to a couple of announcements. Until next time, happy shooting. And a few announcements before we close out. I am heading this summer, so it's going to be like in late July, early mid-August, somewhere in there. Still working some details out. I'm heading to Denver and Chicago. 
The plans are still being worked out, but I'm looking to offer some workshops in those two areas. And they will be printing related, I'm sure. So stay tuned. And the best way to stay tuned and to be in the know is to sign up for my email list on my website. Or I've also got a Facebook group. Just look at Brent Bergham Photo Workshops on Facebook. And either of those places, those where I make my first announcements uh, when I have something new like this coming out uh, with you know the specificity of details and all that. And in case you didn't know, my printing course is now available. And uh, if you head on over to the website, brentbergherm.com, you can read all about it there. And in short, printing is the last step in achieving your photographic vision. It is lasting, and it's tangible, and it's a great way to take your photography way beyond that social media post, way beyond showing someone on your cell phone, that kind of a thing. To me, Printing is more emotional, way more emotional than, and it elicits an emotion better than anything on screen can do. And that's one of the things I love about doing printing. So if you're ready to take that next step, consider that online course. But also I've got a full-blown five-day workshop here in Walla Walla from start to finish, from shooting in some great locations around here. And then we'll finalize it with some awesome printing and, uh, Take a look, brentbergham.com, and happy shooting.